Good morning and welcome to Current Radio. It's Friday, January 5th. We're starting 2024 by asking, why do science? And exploring the potential revolution in science through the AI quantum computing mashup. Plus, we delve into the science behind Japan's deadly earthquakes and discover how new technology is aiding scientists in tracking the notoriously elusive giraffes. All this coverage and more, up next. Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. In the world of academia, the question, why do you do science, is not often asked. However, it's a question that can reveal a lot about the motivations and aspirations of those in the field. Charlotte, can you tell us more about this and how it's being used to foster discussion and connection in scientific communities? Certainly, Diego. This question was first posed at a journal club at Erasmus University Rotterdam, and it sparked such an interesting discussion that two of the attendees, MT and LV, decided to bring it back to their own lab at the University of Verona in Italy. They asked their fellow lab members, who ranged from trainees and PhD students to postdocs and lab technicians, to think about why they do science and then share their answers at a special lab meeting. That sounds like a fascinating discussion. What were some of the responses? Well, the responses were quite varied. The most senior members of the lab said they had become scientists to satisfy an existential need, the curiosity and thirst for knowledge that is intrinsic to every human. Some early career researchers saw science as a way to unravel complex puzzles and build a better future. Colleagues from low-income countries and some undergraduate students felt a strong call to answer more immediate social needs and improve people's lives today. And some simply found science fun. It's quite interesting to see the different motivations that drive people to pursue science. How did this discussion impact the lab? The meeting had a profound impact on the lab members. It allowed them to openly discuss the role of scientists and explore aspects of their personalities that often remain hidden during everyday work. They felt more connected as a group and validated in their pursuits in this field because of their similar underlying reasons. The discussion didn't end on that day, but kept coming up during coffee breaks throughout the year. They're even considering making this discussion a yearly event to involve new team members and reflect on their growing experience as scientists. What a wonderful way to foster connection and reflection in a scientific community. Thanks for sharing this story, Charlotte. Now, shifting to the world of technology, two terms have been creating quite a buzz, machine learning and quantum computers. Imagine combining the two, you get quantum machine learning, a concept that's attracting a lot of attention. Charlotte, can you share more about this? Absolutely, Diego. Quantum machine learning is a fascinating field. It's essentially a merger of machine learning, a form of artificial intelligence, and quantum computers, which promise to solve problems much more efficiently than traditional digital electronics. This is due to their ability to harness the unique properties of the subatomic world. The question now is whether these quantum computers can enhance machine learning. And how are the big tech companies responding to this? Tech giants like Google and IBM, as well as startups like Regetti and IonQ, are exploring the potential of quantum machine learning. Even academic scientists are showing strong interest. For instance, CERN, 
the European Particle Physics Laboratory, is experimenting with quantum machine learning to improve their data analysis. So what's the big question here? What are researchers trying to figure out? The major question is whether quantum machine learning offers any advantage over the classical variety. While theory suggests that quantum computers can speed up calculations for specialized tasks, there's still a lack of evidence that this is the case for machine learning. Some researchers believe that quantum machine learning could spot patterns that classical computers miss, even if it isn't faster. Interesting. So, are there any practical applications for this yet? Well, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some researchers are beginning to focus on applying quantum machine learning algorithms to phenomena that are inherently quantum. This is seen as the area where there's a clear quantum advantage. However, there are also challenges, such as the difficulty in translating classical data to quantum computation and the slow and inefficient process of initializing and reading out from a quantum computer. So it sounds like there's still a lot to learn about the potential of quantum machine learning. Absolutely, Diego. While there are promising signs, it's clear that more research and experimentation are needed to fully understand the capabilities and limitations of quantum machine learning. But the potential for breakthroughs in this field is certainly exciting. This week, Japan was hit by a series of powerful earthquakes, causing significant damage and loss of life. Charlotte, can you give us some insight into the situation? Absolutely, Diego. A magnitude 7.6 earthquake hit Ishikawa Prefecture on January 1st. This was the strongest quake to occur in the prefecture in over a century. The quake prompted tsunami warnings and was followed by 146 smaller earthquakes on Ishikawa's Noto Peninsula, resulting in over 60 deaths. The number of casualties is expected to rise as rescue teams continue to search through the rubble. Japan is known for being earthquake-prone, but what caused this particular quake? Japan sits on top of four converging tectonic plates, making it one of the most earthquake-prone countries in the world. The earthquakes in Ishikawa are triggered by faults within the plate itself, which are put under pressure when the tectonic plates push against each other. The main magnitude 7.6 earthquake probably originated in a 150-kilometer-long fault beneath the Noto Peninsula. And what about the aftershocks? Why have there been so many? The aftershocks were likely triggered by multiple fault ruptures inside the plate that followed the larger earthquake. Studies have also shown that fluids deep inside Earth's crust could drive earthquakes in Ishikawa. As these fluids well up through the crust, they can weaken the fault zone and cause it to slip, leading to a series of aftershocks following a main earthquake. How has Japan responded to this disaster? Since the 2011 Tohoku event, Japan has improved its earthquake early warning systems. Shortly after the magnitude 7.6 earthquake hit Ishikawa, the Japan Meteorological Agency, issued a major tsunami warning and called on residents to evacuate to higher ground. However, the aftershocks have made it difficult for rescue teams to retrieve people who are trapped under the ruins of fallen buildings, and they could cause further damage to already weakened structures. It's a devastating situation. What can we expect in the coming days? The frequency of aftershocks is expected to decrease, but more will probably hit the region. Another magnitude 6 or 7 earthquake is not out of the question. As Takuya Nishimura, an earthquake scientist at Kyoto University in Japan, said, we need to prepare. A sobering reminder of the power of nature. 
Thanks for your insights, Charlotte. Now, let's shift our focus to the animal kingdom. Giraffes, with their unique silhouette and graceful walk, are a familiar sight for many of us. However, beneath this familiarity lies a silent extinction, a term used to describe the unnoticed decline in giraffe numbers. Charlotte, can you tell us more about this? Absolutely, Diego. Despite their iconic status, giraffe populations have been quietly plummeting. Expanding agriculture and human communities have fragmented the savannas they rely on, leading to a 40% decline in the four giraffe species since 1985. The situation is particularly dire for the Nubian giraffe, a critically endangered subspecies, which has seen a 95% population loss and is now down to perhaps 3,000 animals. That's alarming, but I understand there are efforts underway to track and protect these animals. Can you elaborate on this? Yes, the Giraffe Conservation Foundation has partnered with African Parks to manage and protect giraffe habitats in South Sudan. However, tracking giraffes presents a unique challenge. Traditional GPS collars don't work well due to the giraffe's long, tapering neck. Past attempts with anklets, chest harnesses, and head-mounted tags have all had limited success. So how are they overcoming this challenge? Recent technological advances have led to smaller solar-powered trackers that can be attached to a giraffe's tail or ear. These trackers are less obtrusive and can last a year or more. In April, trackers were attached to 11 Nubian giraffes. The data collected will help identify key habitats and routes within the parks, potentially leading to their expansion and the implementation of extra patrols to limit poaching. As Julian Fennessy, co-founder and conservation director of GCF said, we can't conserve what we don't understand. A critical step towards understanding and conserving these majestic creatures. Thanks for sharing, Charlotte. And with that, we conclude our stories for today on Current Radio, and we look forward to bringing you more updates tomorrow.